Friends, I don't know about you, but I absolutely love hearing children in our service. Families, thank you for bringing your children to be with us. And uh, don't worry. We want to have children with us in the service. On the opposite spectrum of life from children are dead people. When people die and the cause of their death is unclear, some undergo a process uh, called an autopsy. It's a process by which uh, people can determine, the, the living ones can determine what caused the death of a dead person. Uh, why would people do that? Why would people want to get an autopsy? Well, sometimes it might be uh, in a crime situation uh, for people to realize and uh, understand what was the leading cause of death in a particular crime, the why and the how someone died. But autopsies are often conducted by researchers to understand how a disease has spread and reached a fatal point in a human body. Such an examination can help scientists discover a path, discover a solution that would help prevent that disease to arrive at a fatal point. To help prevent in the rest of the living people uh, to get to that place of, of death. Paul is interested in a similar examination and evaluation of why the people of Israel failed to achieve God's righteousness. Why, though they pursued it, they failed at it. What went wrong with them? Where did they make the wrong turn? So that as he is making this evaluation of where did Israel fail, that we, the rest of us, would learn, would be warned or corrected or encouraged, so that we in our spiritual journey would not make the same wrong turns. So the title of the message this morning is An Autopsy, of a religious people. Now, I intentionally put the adjective religious people and did not call it just of a, of a general people, of a secular people. Because what characterized the nation of Israel is that they were a very zealous people in their religion. So that religion alone was not going to be a sufficient recipe for, if you will, making it with God. So this morning I invite you to open God's Word to Romans chapter 9. We'll be reading from verse 30 to chapter 10, verse 4. Romans chapter 9, we'll be reading from verse 30 to chapter 10, verse 4. As Paul continues his argument, an argument that he started at the beginning of chapter 9, Today we continue this argument in chapter 9, verse 30. Here's the word of the Lord for us. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone as it is written. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. 
Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for us. Would you join me in asking God to bless the preaching of this word and the hearing of this word? Let's pray. Gracious Father, we are so privileged to be able to hear this word, your word, as you revealed it to us by your Holy Spirit through your prophets and apostles. But Father, we confess and declare as we have heard from this word, that apart from receiving this word with faith, this word will be only for our condemnation and destruction. So we pray and ask by your spirit that you would help me proclaim this word, that you would help us hear it in faith and with faith. Give us that faith, we pray. In the name of Jesus Christ, we ask, and to the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The autopsy of a religious people. And the people that Paul is writing about is the nation of Israel, is the Israelites. And the fact that he begins in chapter 10 praying and telling us what his desire is and what his prayer to God is, that they might be saved, is quite a shocking statement. Aren't the people of Israel God's people? Do they need to be saved? Aren't they the people of God? Aren't they God's elect in the Old Testament? If anybody has any assurance, safety net, if you will, to catch him if they go in the wrong direction, it would be them. We saw last week that Paul's answer was, no, not everyone who is a descendant of Israel is Israel. God indeed planned to form a people for himself through Abraham and through his offspring. But God made very clear that God's offspring or the people God is forming through Abraham's offspring was not caused by biological descent or ethnic background. Instead, the people of God come to be the people of God through the Word of God, based on God's election, through His undeserved mercy, and through His sovereign will. In light of that, we saw last week from chapter 9, verse 1 through 29, that becoming the people of God is only possible through God. Even if you are a descendant of Abraham, it does not mean that you are the people of God. Only through God is anyone, even the descendants of Abraham, able to be made the people of God. And only through God are we able, and through his terms, are we able to actually become his people. Our text today looks at the same reality that was introduced to us last week, but today that reality is considered from the human perspective. Pursuing religion without personal faith in Christ will fail. 
That's the point of the message today. Pursuing religion, even the idea of pursuing God without personal faith in Christ will fail. And we see Paul making this claim and helping us see as he examines why is it that Israel failed? Did the word of God fail? Paul says, no, the word of God hasn't failed, so why did Israel fail? Last week, we looked at God's perspective on this failure. Today, we look at the human perspective on this failure. And in this passage, as Paul looks and examines, he will help us see a surprising reversal, a God-relying response, and that faith in Jesus is the only way. God's salvation has a surprising reversal. We were already introduced to that reversal in the first part of chapter 9. And that reversal now comes to a concluding point. Look at verse 30 and 31. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Do you see the reversal of outcomes? Those who did not pursue righteousness attained it. Those who pursued righteousness through the law did not attain it. Doesn't this startle you a bit? The Gentiles did nothing to pursue it, and they got it. The Jews did what we might say everything they could, and yet they failed at it. Doesn't this seem a little unfair? Many of the Israelites tried, but trying was not good enough. When parents teach their young kids sports or a new, a new thing to do or accomplish a craft, they'll show them what to do and then give them a chance to do it. And as often as it happens, the child in the first attempt or first few attempts really miss it big time. And yet, the parent or the coach, they're wise to say, Good try. You know, it, it was a failure, but at least you tried. And the try is good. We try to be positive even in the failure, right? What can we, what can we say something positive about, about what went totally wrong? Good try. And you know, there are some people who have the same expectation about God and salvation. Oh, God will just look at my try. Yeah, I, I failed miserably, but at least I tried. And some of us are upset with God that it's unfair and unjust. Why would he not give us a little bit of a pass and just tell us, pat us on the back and say, good try. You totally blew it, but good try. And here's the Apostle Paul telling us that when it comes to God's salvation, we must understand the surprising reversal. Those who didn't try got it. And those who tried failed to obtain it because they pursued it the wrong way. Because simply trying is not going to cut it. If we look at the flow of Paul's argument that started at the beginning of chapter 9, verse 1, we realize that these verses, 30 and 31, that we read, are actually the conclusion to the argument Paul has been building up from verse 1. Now, what makes us know that this is a conclusion? Well, look at how verse 30 starts. What shall we say then? I mean, just let that sink in. Everything he said from verse 1 to verse 29 is now drawing us to this conclusion. Last week we saw the, the 
primary, the centerpiece of God's salvation of his people, that center is God. Not us. The center of what makes the people of God, the DNA of what makes the people of God be the people of God is not us, not our will, not our effort, not our performance. It is God. The people of God are not based on human descent or human will, but on God's will. And being a part, part of the people of God depends on God's word. It depends on God's election. It depends on God's undeserved mercy and on God's sovereign will over who becomes the people of God. So because salvation does not depend on human birthrights or entitlements, we should not be surprised at the reversal of outcomes. God gives his salvation to the people who don't try. And he keeps it away from the people who try. Why, Lord? It's because that's the way he has it. This is his salvation. This is his terms. Those who did not pursue it got it. Those who pursued it didn't. Don't you feel a little upset over that? Don't you feel a little unfair? Again, this shows that human effort or initiative is not the secret sauce for the cause of our salvation. For bringing us the new birth for bringing us the regenerating life of God. This is why we would not agree with any statement of faith that makes repentance and faith a condition or requirement for the new birth. This is why in our own statement of faith, in the Baptist Faith and Message 2000, faith and repentance are the fruits the effects of the new birth, of regeneration. You might say that's a little bit of a wordsmithy uh, distinction just between people who just love theology and love carefulness of, no, of words. Oh, my friends, no, it's not. It's as significant as the Copernican Revolution. Yeah, up, to, up to the 15th, 16th century, people believed that because we see the sun rising in the morning and setting down at night. That the sun travels around the earth. That the earth is the center and the sun travels around it. It took a Polish scientist to discover that actually it was not the sun who goes around the earth. But the earth travels around the sun. And the, the discovery was so significant that it's called the Copernican Revolution. In a similar way, people look at a number of verses in the Bible that clearly put the command on us to repent and believe in Jesus. To respond to God and, and trust in the sacrifice of Christ. And people say, well, if these commands clearly show that we must do something and we must respond, therefore... We must be the center. Friends, we are not the center. God is. To us, humanly, from the human perspective, it looks like the sun is going around the earth because that's what we get to see from our human perspective. But God in his word tells us that actually he is at the center of salvation and he's the cause of our regeneration. And it happens aside from our initiative. Here's another way someone might put it. Well, God knew what we will choose. And therefore, God saves us because God knows ahead of time what we would choose. Oh, friends, that just puts man back at the center of this system called salvation. As if God is just waiting and won't do anything until he knows what you will do. That puts you back to be the center. Yes, there are commands and language in the Bible that makes it seem like you got to respond. 
in order to be saved. And you have to respond in order to be saved. But the cause of our new birth, the cause of our salvation, is not our decision. It's not even our repentance. It's not even our, our decision to put our faith in Jesus. The cause of our salvation is God alone. To try to put man back at the center and ultimately to make it be all about finally what you will choose. Oh, friends, that's just putting back our confidence in our choice. Yes, we must choose. But the confidence we have for our salvation is God alone. What a hopeful message this is here to hear that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained it. This is the amazing, amazing good news of the gospel. That it's not based on your initiative. It is not based on your research power or on your zeal of searching for God. No, it is not based on your searching abilities. It is based on God. This is hopeful. But also there's a warning here. Our right standing with God is not based on our hard effort or good performance of God's law. And yet so many people try to gain their right standing with God based on how they perform. And Paul wants to help us see here, why do the Jewish people fail? Why did they fail? Because they, they took what God provided, the law. It was God's gift to them. And they, they used it in the wrong way. They misunderstood God's terms for the law. They misunderstood God's purpose for the law. So this means that God's salvation must be embraced on God's terms, not ours. And this leads us to point number two. If God's salvation has a surprising reversal, point number two is that God's salvation comes through a God-relying response. God's salvation comes through a God-relying response. Look at verses 32 and 33. Paul now gets to a place of saying, why? Why did they fail? Now, on one side, he already told us from verse 1 through verse 29. And yet, in the remain part of this text, he's going to tell us the reason why they failed from a human perspective. It's the same reality, but now seen from the human perspective. Paul says in verse 32, why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As, as it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Well, friends, these verses function like an autopsy to help us understand what malfunctioned in those who failed to attain the righteousness of God, though they search for it. What went wrong in their search? Their problem was not that they did not search for God. Their problem was how they searched for God. On what foundations? On what terms? We see that they search for God in the wrong place. In the wrong way. As we look at this autopsy of how they failed, I hope that we would be both challenged and equipped not to fall for the same wrong turns, the same mistakes, the same wrong confidences in our own spiritual journey. What is it? What is the wrong turn they took? Well, on one side, they did not pursue God's righteousness by faith. Uh, they searched for him without relying on him. They searched for God without trusting in God. You say, is that possible? Oh, absolutely it's possible. The whole 
history, most of the history of the people of Israel is that story. They trusted in themselves even as they searched for God. How tragic was their search to search for God and be devoted even to his word and yet to do so without faith in his provision for righteousness. Is this possible? Yes. The Jewish people are a warning for us that it is very possible to search for God without faith in God, without relying on Him. People can come up with their own rationales and, and rituals for their spiritual search, even for their Bible studies, but not trust what God said that He would do. The, the second facet of that part is that instead of trusting in God's provision for righteousness, they pursued God's law, by the way, which is a good thing. They pursued it as if it was as if righteousness was based on works. As if righteousness was dependent on their performance of what God required. Instead of Responding to God's promise of salvation by relying on Him when they could not perform God's law, they kept trying harder and harder with a confidence in their own performance. Look again in verse 32. Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. Paul traces the explanation of their fall by quoting two Old Testament prophecies, both coming from the book of Isaiah. Verse 33, they stumbled over the stumbling stone. And then quotes, as it's written, I am laying, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. The first prophecy, the first part of the prophecy of Isaiah is from Isaiah chapter 8. Read it at home. Read the whole chapter at home. It's an amazing chapter. It comes after chapter 7, the promise of Emmanuel. And it comes before the great news of the gospel in chapter 9. But between these two chapters is chapter 8. God promised to save his people, but they did not want to believe him. They prefer to rely on alliances with neighboring countries. So the Lord gave them a picture of himself. In Isaiah 8, 14, God said that he would be a stone of stumbling for his people. How would you like that to be a message for you? God to say to you, I am going to be now a stone of stumbling for you. It's because they chose not to rely on God's promise of restoration, on God's provision. Said, all right, if you're not going to take my offer of what I'm offering you to help you escape, that I'm going to be for you a stone of stumbling. You're going to trip up over me. Because when our response to God does not involve relying on Him, but on ourselves, the outcome is not salvation, but destruction. God repeats this picture of Himself as a stone in chapter 26 of Isaiah, verse 16, where the prophet says, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious stone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes in him will not be in haste. A very weird promise. Will not be in haste. Why would they be in haste? If you read the context of Isaiah 26, I'm sorry, of Isaiah 28, before and after this verse, the leaders of the people of Israel boast in their self-security. Their boast is so confident that they actually say, and this is coming up in Isaiah 28, 
that they have made a treaty, a covenant with death itself, that even death will not be able to touch them. And they say that both, both at the beginning and the end. And in between, God says, oh, really? You feel so confident in your self-security? You think that you have a way to escape death and it will not harm you? I'm giving you an alternative. I'm putting in Zion a stone, a precious stone. And if you trust on that, and whoever believes on that will not be in haste. What a picture. Haste is the manifestation of their self-reliance. Hurry, busyness, taken up with so many self-reliant mechanisms that God's picture for the promise of what will happen to us when we, when we believe in that stone is no more hurry, no more haste. That's a picture of rest. That's a picture of stopping. You don't have to be on the run anymore. That's what God wants to offer his people. And Paul and Peter, the passage we read earlier that Curtis read for us, they combine these two prophecies from Isaiah 28 and Isaiah 8 and say, combine these together and say, God has spoken to his people. He has provided on one side a stone of stumbling and offense, but in that same stone of stumbling and offense is the only way for them to escape for them not to be put to shame. Oh, friends, how did Israel respond to God's offer? Say, here, I'm giving you a better alternative. Israel said, no, thank you. We have something more reliant to do. We have something more safe to grip on. Oh, friends, self-reliance, even for a religious people. And the hard part about the people of Israel that this, this is hard to realize is that they actually embraced the law of God for self-security. They actually looked at the law of God as a means of trusting in themselves. Instead of looking to God to make them righteous, they looked at their performance of God's law, hoping that in that performance they would be found righteous. And the apostles understand that this stone that God promised to give to them, to his people, is actually the prophecy about Christ. How would Christ be both a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, and also a means of escaping shame? Friends, this is the amazing mystery of how God would leave us crumbs, clues in the Old Testament to point to the death of Christ. A king, a messiah, the promised one who would come and actually be crucified as a means of as a symbol of being cursed. And, and the Jews clearly saw in that a stumbling, a rock of offense. Is this what God provided? And God said, yes. This is a stone I am putting in Zion. You must trust in him. Only in him is salvation. Only in him God provided the way for our righteousness. And the Jews said, no, thank you. We can't do that. That's a stumbling. That's too offensive. Friends, isn't the gospel continuing to be a message of offense even today, both culturally and intellectually? Uh, to claim that this is the only way for people to be made right with God is offensive because it suggests that any other way is inadequate. And God says it is. Would you trust me? To claim that Jesus is the only way for salvation does not sit well with most people. And then to claim that a crucified Messiah 
was raised from the dead is not an easy pill to swallow for the rationalistic and scientific mind that defines reality only by this material world that we can touch and see. The gospel of Jesus continues to be offensive today. My friends, it's always been offensive. God from the beginning designed it to be a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. It's been offensive to the people of Israel. It's offensive to postmodern people today. And sometimes it's offensive even to religious people. It's offensive even to us. I wonder if you have come to a place of embracing by faith the stone of stumbling and the rock of offense that God has placed for our salvation. Are there ways in which you find yourself ashamed of or just stumbling into this path of salvation? Something just doesn't sit well with you. You can't make sense of it. Friends, whatever the stumbling is, we would love to talk to you about what exactly trips you up about this rock of offense. Perhaps if, if you are a Christian, perhaps you may still find Jesus a stumbling or an offense when we are afraid to talk to our friends about him. Even for us Christians, sometimes we find Jesus offensive. Friends, this rock of offense is Christ. He's an offense to human pride. He's an offense to human performance. He's an offense to self-confidence. He's an offense to self-reliance. But he's God's only means for helping us escape our shame, the shame of our sin, the guilt of our sin, have you come to a place of trusting him fully? If you have not yet, I would encourage you, come to the Lord. Rely on him. Because this is the only way for God's salvation to be yours. Finally, Paul concludes this passage by clarifying that the reliance on the Lord is not just a sort of a generic reliance, an abstract reliance, but it's actually very pinpointed. It's a reliance, it's a faith in Christ alone, even for the Jews. Even for the Jews. Look at chapter 10. Paul says that he is, he's burdened, he has a desire in his heart, and he's praying to God. He's praying to God for the Jewish people. He's praying that they might be saved. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they might be saved. Friends, this means that Paul's view of the Israelites is that they are not saved. Otherwise, Paul would not need to pray this prayer for them. This also means that if you have walked away from the sermon last week with a, a picture of the sovereignty of God, God being at the center, if God is the one on whom our salvation ultimately belongs to, you might wonder and say, well, then then why evangelize? Why pray? Oh, friends, in this passage, Paul tells us why we should pray, and in the next passage, Paul will tell us why we should evangelize if we believe in the sovereignty of God. But in this passage, let me put it this way. If God is not ultimately sovereign in our salvation, why should we pray to him? If at the end of the day, our salvation is ultimately based on human decision, then why waste your time praying to a God who ultimately will leave it up to you? You are wasting your time praying to this God. It is our confidence in the sovereignty of God in salvation that is actually the fuel for praying for the lost. And those who are convinced of the sovereignty of God for salvation will be the most praying people for the salvation of others because they know that ultimately God's salvation is, is with him. He is the one who works his salvation in people's hearts. So 
rather than saying, well, if God is sovereign in salvation, why should I waste my time praying? I want to tell you is, if God is not sovereign in salvation, why are you wasting your time praying? Paul says he is praying to God for the salvation of the Israelites. Friends, let me speak to parents who have adult children who seemed hardened against the Lord. It's not uncommon, especially for us who believe in the sovereignty of God, to wonder, well, I wonder if my people, my, my children are, are part of the elect. And I want to tell you is, don't worry about that. Keep praying for your children. We don't know whom the Lord has chosen to elect. Just keep praying for the salvation of your children. Paul here, who believes in the sovereignty of God in salvation, keeps praying for the Israelites. Keep praying for God's salvation of your children. Why are the Israelites still in need of salvation? Verses 2 and 3 for, they, I, for Paul says, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. And here's a caution and a warning for all of us. Zeal for God is no guarantee of salvation. Zeal for God can be misguided and insufficient. It was misguided in the case of the Israelites because of their ignorance of God's righteousness. They placed that confidence that was supposed to be on the Lord in themselves. And at the end of the day, that led them to actually not just stay ignorant of God's righteousness, but to reject God's righteousness. It was not a neutral ignorance. It was an indicting ignorance. Some people show their rebellion against God by not taking God seriously. Others rebel against God by doing the very opposite of what God reveals to us in His Word. And yet there's another form of religion. There's another form of rebellion. It's the rebellion of the religious. People can rebel against God through religion, through man-centered religion through being very devoted on just doing what God says, putting confidence in themselves and not centered on Jesus Christ, on his death, on his resurrection. Friends, the faith that God requires is not just general abstract faith. It's faith in Jesus Christ. Reliance on his work on the cross, reliance on his resurrection to bring Himself and all those who put their faith and trust in Christ to bring them to eternal life. Friends, apart from trusting in that Christ, in His work on the cross, no matter how zealous our religious commitments are, no matter how much knowledge of the Bible we have, it's all going to be for nothing. Paul concludes with a great summary in verse 4. He says, look Look what the law has always been about. The law has always been about Christ. This is how Paul closes in verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. This is what the, the Jewish people misunderstood about God's law in the Old Testament. That actually the law of God, even in the Old Testament, was never aimed and was never the recipe to be able to make God's people righteous in the sight of God. The word end of the law can be interpreted in different ways. It can mean the, the, the law is no longer needed, if you will. It's no longer necessary. That is one way of interpreting the phrase, Christ is the end of the law. I'm not convinced that is the most helpful interpretation. Because, and I'll tell you why. Let me tell you the second way in which the word end of the law can be understood. When it says Christ is the end of the law, the word end could also be translated as goal, target. So the phrase Christ is the end of the law 
could be translated as Christ is the goal of the law. Christ is the, the target to which the law pointed. Some Bible teachers think it's both meanings. I'm persuaded to, to believe that it's actually just the second. And here's why. Because even in the Old Testament, the law was never sufficient to, to be a means of righteousness by sinful people. The law, there's places where we might say, if you live by this law or you, if you do this law, you shall live by it. The problem is nobody is able to live by it. So for sinful people, the perfect law of God was never a recipe for their self-confidence. It was actually a pointer to, to convince them that their self-confidence is empty, that there's no grounds for it. And the law was used always to point to the need for a perfect righteousness that no human being could actually execute and perform until the incarnation of Jesus Christ. This is what the Israelites failed to see, that the law of God, the law God gave even to, to Moses, was a pointer to righteousness. But the pointer to righteousness was not that they could actually perform it, but that they couldn't. And instead of seeing the law as a, as a pointer to Christ, they saw the law as a means of earning their right standing with God. And this is, this is where they blew it. So when Paul says Christ is the end of the law, he's saying even in the Old Testament, the law was always pointing to Christ. He's been the end of the law even in the Old Testament. It's not just for the New Testament. He's been the point of the law even in the Old Testament. And friends, this means for us who are not Jews, who are not Israelites, that it is possible for us to follow in the same trap like the Israelites did to read the Bible to establish our own righteousness. Do you study the Bible to prove how good you are? Do you study the Bible or get in the Word to try to show to yourself, to God, and to others how good you're doing it? Well, friends, this is what the Jewish people have done in the Old Testament with the Old Testament. Instead, study the Bible to point you to your inability on your own and to your need for Jesus through and through. We can do that from Genesis to Revelation. It all points to Christ. So read your Bible as a way to helping you not just get more knowledge, not just trying to help you live just better. Live the Bible with a sense of understanding your insufficiency on your own. Let it humble you all the time. And let it point you to rely more on God's provision for righteousness, which is Jesus. And out of that flows a life of increasing obedience to Christ. But our confidence is never in our performance of the obedience. Oh, friends, this text shows us and provides us a spiritual autopsy to reveal how any of us could, could go wrong, even in our Bible reading. As a church, we're encouraging you to read the Bible, to read it regularly, to read it joyfully, to read it generously. Not just a crumb here and there. Read it. Feast on it. Uh, this week, a number of men uh, met together. We were reading through a book on, called The Habits of Grace. And one of the sections in the book was encouraging us to recognize when we meditate on God's Word, we're not just meditating for information and insight. We're meditating so that our eyes would see the magnitude of God. To see the magnitude of God in Genesis, Exodus, Le uh, Leviticus, Numbers, all the way through Revelation. Read the Bible to see the magnitude of God so that you can actually rely on Him more. So you can actually enjoy Him more. This is why we read the Bible. 
not so that we can earn brownie points with God, not so that we think we are on the, on the right path, in the right standing with God, but so that we can actually enjoy more of God. Oh, friends, even our spiritual disciplines, we can con- do them as an act of self-reliance. This is what the Jewish people have done. And what this passage is asking us and challenging us is consider all that you do with God's word to solicit in you, to cause you to rely on the Lord. And that reliance needs to be centered in the stone of Jesus Christ. A stumbling stone, a a rock of offense, and yet uh, the only means of escape. We have seen this autopsy of a religious people. I wonder if some of us are trying to find this self-confidence in the fact that we are a member of a church or that we are a member of a Baptist church or that, oh, you, you're better. Oh, I'm a not a member. I, I just take part of the fact that I'm just part of God's universal people. Friends, each of us find some conviction, some self-reliance in some way. We take what God's provided for us and we turn it to self-confidence. What is that for you? could be membership, could be spiritual disciplines, it could be missions, it could be acts of service. Whatever it is for you that the Lord convicts you of that you are using as confidence with your standing with the Lord. Friends, let's learn from this autopsy of our religious people that we may not fall in the same danger to seek God apart from relying on Him on Christ will lead to our destruction. Are you following in this trap? Are you falling in this trap? We have no excuse. Let's pray. Father, There are times when we don't fully understand the magnitude and the intricacies of your plan of salvation. But we have understood today that you save us by calling us to humble ourselves and not put any confidence in ourselves, in our plans, but to cast all our hopes and reliance on you. Father, we pray that through the gospel you continue to humble us. Father, we pray that even in hoping and desiring a right response to this gospel, Father, our confidence is not in ourselves. We want to look to to you even for the right response to this gospel. So that we pray, that we pray that you would work in our own hearts, that you would cast away, that you'd peel off, self-reliance, even in religious things. And Father, we pray for those who are still blind in their sin that you would open their eyes and give them the gift of salvation. But we pray that we would be a people who put our confidence not in ourselves, but in you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.